It's September 7th, 2021, and I'm back with Matt McGregor to discuss the week's acquisition headlines. The first one we got, Air Force Chief, Air Force Chief Software Officer to resign from FCW. Quote, we are the largest software organization on the planet, and we have almost no shared repositories and little to no collaboration across DOD services, Shaylon wrote in the resignation memo obtained by FCW. At this point, I'm just tired of continuously chasing support and money to do my job. My office still has no billet and no funding this year and the next. Uh, so, so, of course, that's Nicholas Shalon, who was the chief software officer for first the Air Force, right? And then, and then DOD. But uh, he came in around August of 2018. It's been about three years and seems like his last day will be in early October. So pretty, pretty big shakeup. And it seemed like he was pretty, you know, this kind of letter he put out on LinkedIn was really you know, celebrating some of the great things that he actually did. But then there was kind of a, a couple of areas where he was, you know, uh, didn't have the nicest thing to say. Like he felt like he was being constrained and not able to get the job done. Yeah. And I don't, you know, I don't really think it was personal to, to him. And, you know, I don't, and I also, you know, ironically, I don't think it was because people don't see leadership doesn't see the value of software because, you know, there's lots of talk about it. it everybody sort of knows in, inherently that it's really critical. I think it's the lack of, for one, it's the lack of tech expertise, I think, with some of the leaders and just what needs to happen and to understand, you know, that if I don't fund this appropriately, that like, here are the things I don't get, here are the downstream effects. I don't think that is fully appreciated. And the budget cycle is so chaotic and it's so focused on big platforms that I think it's really, really easy for things like Platform One, despite that being as, you know, such a critical program and everybody in the software world, you know, in DoD, you know, knows about it and, and potentially is using it. But for, for a lot of senior leaders, they're not seeing that, right? Like they're, they're not in the de development business. So, so yeah, when you're making trade-offs, budget trade-offs between a bunch of different hardware and platforms and capabilities and you're being told, you know, by Cape, maybe you got to buy these, these things and these things. It's easy for software to, to kind of float to the bottom. And I think that is something the department is going to have to be very, very deliberate about because it's not just one or two programs. A lot of programs are dealing with this unless they have really strong champions uh, and advocates pushing for them is, you know, if somebody, well, here's a, here's a common thing, right? Here's what happens during the budget cycle. You'll get told, um, what if we gave you, you asked for, uh, you know, 30 million. What if we gave you 15 million? What would that mean to you? For hardware programs, they can say, I'm going to buy 10 less of what, you know, what I said I was going to buy. And they can quantify that. And everybody kind of understands that number. Software is a little bit tougher. Like, well, I'm going to give you less capability. What capability are you not going to give me? Well, I don't know because we're an agile program and, you know, we haven't all prioritized the, the latest backlog. So, you know, I can't say specifically, but it would be, you know, maybe some of this type of capability. It's a lot more nebulous, right? And so I think that is something that the, the chief service chiefs are going to have to to put front and center in their budget deliberations is to say, I want to understand the software programs and I want to understand, you know, how can you articulate that, the value of them and how should they properly be funded? Because ultimately, I think that's why Nick was so frustrated. It's not just this one example of JADC2, but it's happened on a bunch of other things too. Yeah, but the, the JADC2 one was a pretty, you know, yeah, it was a pretty telling one. And yeah. what he was saying here was that, you know, the joint staff wanted to kind of do the priority of JADC2. And he said he would be able to kind of deliver an MVP within four months, right? So long as he had some money to go do it. And they couldn't even scrape together $20 million to kind of go do this. He had to wait till fiscal year 23 money. And so that would have been, you know, a couple of years out and maybe he wouldn't have gotten the money even then. So that was one thing, but I think you're right. Cause he was talking about, you know, cloud one platform one zero trust. None of these really were receiving direct funding. And it seemed like, you know, he was working probably pretty hard to get like reprogrammed money to get things off the ground. Um, and so it does seem like the, the budget cycle is one of the, it was kind of one of the two things that jumped out to me here, you know, uh, that he wouldn't really have been able to get money till five years after he started and he just decided to quit after three years was kind of one of the things and that kind of aligns <laughs> with the fit up. But then the other one was really the personnel, right? He did, it was hard for him to get money, but it was hard for him to also get 
you know, people. And he said, you know, quote, please stop putting a major lieutenant colonel, despite their devotion and exceptional attitude and culture, in charge of ICAMs, your trust cloud for 4 million users when they have no previous experience in the field. We are setting up critical infrastructure to fail. You would not put a pilot in the cockpit without extensive flight training. Why would we expect someone with no IT experience to be close to successful? So this is kind of a, a similar complaint that we've been hearing from for years, right? From David Packard and Hyman Rickover and all these people, but, um, you know, having that dedicated set of people. And I think, you know, you might have more insight on this. Wasn't there something with a software core that they were talking about in this year's NDAA? Does that like kind of get to some of this issue that he was addressing on the personnel front? Yeah, there was a software cadre, but it was more at the OST level to, to help programs. But I mean, I think this problem is very solvable. Um, we, we have done it in the past where, I mean, actually, I will say the Air Force has a different model than the other services. So it's very common in like, say the army for the program manager of a tank program to have been a tank commander. Um, now, some can argue that, you know, that, that, that person spent most of their life being a, a tank commander and therefore maybe they don't have, you know, quite the business chops that somebody might have of, of somebody who is, you know, been living in the acquisition world for, for that same period of time. But I think that's, that's a trade-off I think you have to kind of make is for IT stuff, it's probably more critical because there's just a lot of more complexity to it. Um, and so maybe we should have more cross, cross training from the, you know, we do have a cyber field, we do have an IT career field and those, those folks do know their stuff and maybe they need to become more program managers of some of these, some of these IT efforts and not just the acquisition career field. Um, so, so maybe we need to, maybe the Air Force needs to adopt some of the, the Army, uh, Navy mindset for, um, you know, for, for, for this type of thing. But yeah, yeah, that's, I think that's a solvable problem. It's more of just, hey, once the personnel system gets established, it's really, it's really kind of hard to make changes. So uh, people just plug program managers wherever they, wherever they feel like they're needed and they don't really look at the expertise piece. Yeah, um, of course, this will be something we'll be tracking and, and seeing kind of what's the legacy, what happens to Platform One and, and DevSecOps throughout the department as we go forward. I think, you know, I think Shaylon, though, has kind of made his mark and impact. I don't think any of that stuff is necessarily going away, but, you know, will it be accelerated? Will, will there be the same kind of enterprise toolkit? Um, you know, that's... Lovely. I don't know. The only thing I'd say on that is, he definitely, you know, kind of germinated the seed, um, you know, but it's still a delicate flower and it, it could easily, you know, it could easily be squashed. And then, yeah, there's hand, handfuls of programs out there that are doing this, but there needs to be hundreds of programs doing it. And, and so I, I think, yeah, he's definitely started something really good, but I think it does need a new shepherd. And, and maybe Lauren Nossenberger um, is, is the right person. Um, but yeah, needs needs someone to keep shepherding it, keep encouraging programs to adopt things that maybe they're not totally comfortable with, new approaches. Yeah, so hopefully that'll happen. Next one we got Marine Corps Commandant defense defense equipment divestment uh, and strength cuts. So defense. <laughs> Sorry, that was the wrong that that was the wrong typo. Uh, so the the quote here is. Commandant General David Berger said prioritizing next-gen capabilities and cutting troop numbers by nearly 3,000 Marines this year are part of a strategy to prepare for the future. Those are decisions that are hard to make because it would be great to hold on to everything for all of your structure and protect it all, he said. However, in my estimation, that force is not going to be a good match for what we need to do in the future. Going forward, the Corps is interested in deploying more unmanned systems, including manned unmanned teaming, Berger noted. So here again, we, we've been kind of watching this over time, kind of the Marine Corps divesting from bigger legacy equipment like uh, the, the Abrams tanks, getting rid of end strength and kind of um, pri like prioritizing unmanned and smaller, you know, next gen kind of systems. So I guess it kind of follows, you know, it's hard to do it and he's saying it right there, right? But like, you kind of got to shrink before you grow it, to some extent, right? Yeah, I, I have to be honest too. I was a little bit, I kind of thought the numbers were going to be bigger on the cuts. It literally is is, is a cut from 181,200 to 178,500. I, I mean, I know that's a few thousand, but it's not like 10, 15,000. It's like 3,000. So I don't know. I was a little bit, it is kind of, it's kind of funny the reaction of, of cutting a few thousand folks. Um, 
you know, given given the, uh, the the 2030 plan that they that they have for the Pacific. But yeah, no, I mean, I love love what the core is doing. You know, I, I wish um, you know wish other services would kind of get on board with this man unmanned teaming more. And uh, you know, he he's he's looking to like he really you, you have to give a lot of credit to the fact of establishing a vision and then marching towards it unrelenting. You know, like every decision they're making is towards this vision, and so you have to really admire the consistency of it. And you know, he kind of makes the one quote I took away was, you know, we need the organic mobility to move the force. Like he's seeing it that. Supply supply lines are going to be disrupted and they're going to be left, you know, wherever they need to be, they're going to be left probably by themselves. They're not going to have the support that they've historically had. So they, they realize we need the mobility to move the force. We need distribution um, where we don't have, you know, we don't have, we don't have right now to move supplies and sustain it laterally inside the weapons engagements because we have to assume they're going to be contested. So yeah, yeah I think he's got the right vision and, and they're uh, marching, marching towards it. It's great. I guess that's uh, the Marines kind of the, the way they look at the world, right? Uh, is like, I guess Guadalcanal really gave them that, that uh, idea like, oh, the Navy might just dip out on me at any point. <laughs> and they've been chasing that jump set ever since. Um, but, but, you know, I guess, yeah, we'll, we'll see what, what they're up to here uh, in the future. But he did, he did have those good articles with CQ Brown about like what it means to be ready in that trade-off with uh, – with modernization. So it's good that they're having a conversation and he's, he's trying to bring it home. Right. So where, where was that conversation at? I hadn't seen that. Oh, you didn't see those. He, he had a couple with CQ Brown. I think it was in the U S Naval Institute uh, press, Okay, okay. Uh, but maybe I'm mistaken on that, but yeah, I'll, I'll send them to you. Uh, so the next one we got house panel approves 25 billion boosted for the defense budget from the Hill. The bulk of the funding in the amendment, 9.8 billion, would go towards procurement, including 4.7 billion more for shipbuilding, 1.7 billion for aircraft, 878 million for combat vehicles. Republicans argued that when accounting for inflation, the proposal would actually be a cut compared with last year. Instead, they have been pushing for a three to five percent increase above inflation. The NDAA is a policy bill, not a spending bill meaning even if the final product has a top line of $778 billion, a separate appropriations bill with a matching dollar figure would also have to pass for the increase to become a reality. So more money for the uh, Department of Defense and that $778 billion, I think it includes, of course, uh, the national security part of the Department of Energy, uh, right? And something else potentially, is that right? Well, there's a, there is some pass-through stuff that goes... Yeah, it goes all over the place, but yeah, I don't know the exact breakdown. Yeah, so it's not like 778 would be the the number for DOD itself, right? There, there's there's some, yeah, there's other there's stuff, other in, stuff there, in there, but you know, I wonder, you know, it's interesting. Of course, we were talking earlier, like the house, the first version was kind of like, well, they didn't plus up a bunch of procurement, and now they're definitely plussing up procurement, but it seems mostly in shipbuilding. Um not as much for aircraft, but still some for aircraft. Um, does that does that worry you, or do you, do you think that's par for the course? No, I mean I think the shipbuilding thing with the Pacific, you know, push and the fact that they, you know, they really aren't as close to where they, you know, want to be in, in terms of the number of ships or the capabilities that they, you know, think they need. So, yeah, I mean it, it makes sense. I get the, the thing that bothers me. It's not so much like where the money is even being put. Shipbuilding, aircraft, combat vehicles. Yeah, there's needs all over the place, you know, to get the capacity. But the it's more about this idea of just that more money equals more value, um, you know. So at least they at least they did have an idea, and I hope they I hope there was a rationalization for you know what why 4.7 went to shipbuilding and 1.7 went to aircraft, you know, that wasn't just about kind of divvying up the the pod amongst, you know, amongst the districts and stuff like that, that it actually was rationalized in the context of the national strategy or the, you know, Pacific strategy. So, yeah, I, cause we're going to, I think we're going to talk about the next article about more ships too. Um, you know, so I think, uh, you know, Adam Smith did kind of say it right though, with, with regards to this whole increases, the most important thing is that the DOD, you know, needs to spend its money wisely we give them another 23.9 billion it takes the pressure off item after item we have spent billions of dollars without getting anything for that money we have spent that does not make us safer 
So I think that is really key is to kind of, you know, scrutinize, okay, yeah, this 23.9, you know, there was, there was kind of more precision there, but, you know, it really is looking across the value stream and saying, you know, what are, what are we going to get for this? What if we, what if, what if we took 50 million off? Is that really, what is that going to break, you know? And yeah, I think you do have to recognize that the DOD budget has a lot of personnel costs and healthcare and other stuff. So, you know, you do have to focus on the investment side of it, but yeah, it is kind of important to do that, that scrutiny piece and not just add more money because inflation. Yeah. I, you know, the inflate, one thing about the inflation thing is that, okay, well, let's just say actual inflation has been going up. Right. And that I think is in part what they're saying, but they're also saying, you know, we want to grow faster than inflation. So that means the overall boost needs to be bigger. Does that actually get you extra? You know, if you have to pay for the extra inflation, aren't the things that you budgeted for on the cost estimates you expected now kind of uh, not right? Right. Like you expected 2% inflation and now it's 5% inflation. So some of that extra money that you thought you could buy another thing with actually is just going to the cost increases that will be incurred um, on, on the current buys. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, historically, I mean, shoot, the last 20 years, inflation hasn't generally been been that much off, you know, more off the, the targets. But yeah, the, these these years, the escalation rates are probably going to be uh, much different than what was projected. So yeah, that actually could start to bump up some of the cost estimates. Yeah. Yeah, we'll see what, what the Troika, of course, what comes out with those, uh, what those numbers will be. Uh, yeah, so let's move on to the next one, which is on the shipbuilding front. Hask adopts amendment that would authorize four more battle force ships, increase DOD top line uh, to $23.9 billion. So that's from USNI News. So the bill authorizes funding for a third Arleigh class Burke destroyer, one America class amphibious assault ship, one expeditionary fast transport uh, ship, and another Tau John Lewis class fleet oiler. So note that the the Hask actually, I think it already added a DDG fifty one destroyer. They the the president's budget only had one. They were going to incur that thirty three million dollar penalty, so they've already increased it to two. And I guess they've authorized a third, and they're looking to fund it at one hundred and thirty million for FY twenty three. Uh, so the amendment also authorizes funding for two more V two Osprey aircraft, two more P eight A Poseidon aircraft two more KC-130Js, and authorizes more funding for the Navy's F-18 Super Hornets and E-2D Advanced Hawkeye program. So here's another, you know, shipbuilding goes up, aircrafts goes up. Um, this is just a little bit more information on, on where that allocation was. So does that scratch your itch in terms of whether it was strategic or not? Or do you think they're just kind of plussing <laughs> up, you know, things that they thought they could plus up? Well, I mean, the destroyers and the amphibious assault ships, I mean, I'm not a Navy expert, so I'll assume that, you know, some of that is probably needed. Might not might not hurt that some of those are built down in uh, Alabama. You know, Mike Rogers, you know, kind of controls some of the funding here. But yeah, you know, I mean, hard to argue with some of these expeditionary fast transport, you know, oilers. I mean, you know, those things are going to be needed in, in, the, in the Pacific and there's not enough of everything to go around. I don't know. When you start to get into Ospreys, though, and KC-130Js, <laughs> things that, like, the services continually say we don't need. And, I mean, the Navy's kind of been backing off on the F-18s. So, yeah, I, some of that some of that sounds like more of the same old, like, no, you will take, you know, you'll take two, three, four more of these than you want. So, yeah, that one. Yeah, I wonder if the Navy would have been kind of ready for, you know, pouring money onto some of the unmanned stuff that they've been doing out of, uh, unmanned and small combatants that PEO rather than, you know, take on some more of these, you know, more legacy ships, but um, I'm sure they're happy either way. As long as our unmanned unmanned combat ships get, get uh, the same kind of love next budget cycle. I want to see, I want to see some big plus ups for the, uh, for the, for the, un- yeah, it's, it's interesting. You know, last year unmanned got kind of nicked in half about for the, the medium and large surface vessels. Um, I think UUVs did a little bit better. But, um, you know, if they don't get a plus up this year, they're waiting to FY23. Like this whole thing is dragging out pretty, pretty long, huh? Yeah, exactly. All right. Next one. We got bipartisan group of lawmakers presses DOD to back Lockheed Aerojet merger from Space News. The August 31st letter to Deputy Deputy Secretary of Defense uh, 
Kathleen Hicks was signed by nine Republican and four Democratic House members from Arkansas, Alabama, Oklahoma, Texas, California, and Colorado, states where Lockheed Martin and Aerojet Rocketdyne currently operate. Aerojet Rocketdyne is the last standalone rocket propulsion manufacturer of any appreciable size, the lockmakers point out. So I guess this isn't unexpected, right? <laughs> of course, uh, some of the, uh, the representatives of constituents will be coming in to, to back the Lockheed Aerojet merger. Um, there's, we've already reported Lena Khan is kind of against it, um, even though we've had a very similar one just in a couple of years past, but, you know, just, just more political wrangling. And I guess the, the legacy or the saga of the, the merger continues and we'll see what happens. Yeah, it is. It is kind of interesting. It's funny because I went, I went on the Aerojet Rocketdyne. I was just kind of looking at what they kind of have in the hopper for the different programs they support. Man, they really support a lot of stuff. I mean, from hypersonics, the DARPA stuff, you know, maritime undersea systems, you know, munitions, missile defense. I mean, they got, they're in nuclear, thermal propulsion, additive manufacturing. I mean, they're, they got their hands in a lot of stuff, a lot of NASA stuff. Um, it's not just like, doesn't feel like to me, it's just like vertical um, integration. I mean, this is like, these are two massive companies that are going to try to kind of have to merge. It's going to be, it's going to be really disruptive. I'm kind of curious to see, it's hard, always hard to tell because you don't, I don't think they, they don't, you know, you don't hear a lot about it, but I'd like to tell how the, how the Lockheed Martin, you know, merger went, like what were the, what, how, how disruptive was it? Like how many really good engineers, you know, um, left because, you know, they lost their, you know, the thing that they liked the most, like the new company didn't want to defund that anymore. Or, you know, how many projects kind of like, you know, that are in the middle that could really result in something great. How many of those get reevaluated and, you know, underfunded or defunded? I'm always kind of curious about that. Like, what is the, what is the real payoff for, for the potential, for the potential disruption? Because they seem to have a pretty strong team. Like, you know, they, they, they have like, you know, they're, they have their hands in a lot of pots and then they seem to just really be really effective at what they're doing. So is this, is this a good thing? It's just really hard to tell. I think so as well. Um, it seems like what there is, since it's a horizontal kind of integration or it's, it is a vertical integration, right? So since it's a vertical integration, I guess they're not increasing their market concentration in any of their layers of, of, of the industry. But then I guess the point is, are they too powerful? Is there like a power kind of dynamic there? Um, I think Lena Khan's interesting thing was she was, she was looking at Amazon. It's like, okay, well, they're not, you know, dominating retail, but they have power. And that's a problem. Yeah, and, and you can also, I mean, if you, a lot of the subs, the, the relationship between a subcontractor and a prime, you can have long-term agreements. You can essentially treat them like a, like a vertically integrated division of your company. Um, because, you know, the long-term agreements give you a lot of, you know, um, you know, a lot of cost savings and a lot of like, you know, a lot of leverage because basically you're giving that company, you know, a short business for X period of time. And so, you know, if, if, if they can have those relationships with the different, um, you know, um, Northrop's or whoever, you know, whoever need their business, then they're going to get a lot of the benefits of what they say the cost savings are going to be. And so where, where, where is the real value in some of this integration? Where does it come from? Is like, I'm always kind of curious to see where, where they, where, where are they actually achieving? Is it, is it, is it in personnel? Is it in like combining teams? Is it, is it, or is it just in profit and value and share price and stuff like that? Yeah. I mean, that's a good point because like Lockheed already has this kind of, you know, business unit for uh, propulsion, right? Or do they have a propulsion one? Maybe not, but no, I don't think they, do. they have their own missiles, right? So yeah. it's not like rocket airjet rocketdyne if they brought it in would actually integrate into the same business unit. They would treat it as a separate business unit, and that long term agreement would ultimately be about the same, right? That's, that's exactly what you were saying. So I, I think it's weird, you know. It does make sense, like where where does the economies come from? Considering rockets will probably remain more or less modular, right? Like you don't need a super tight integration of that in, into the airframe itself, necessitating like a kind of combination there, right? So yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, we'll be interested. All right, next one we got, recompete of the joint light tactical vehicle JLTV will test whether Army can keep its eye on the ball from Forbes. To date, the company Oshkosh 
has delivered 13,000 of the vehicles and the army expects to keep buying them through 2042. Navstar or Navistar, AM General and General Motors Defense all seem to think that they have a shot at displacing Oshkosh and winning the follow-on production contract for JLTV that could be worth 12 billion. When the Army releases its draft request for proposals in October, it's safe to bet that there'll be plenty of comment from industry. So there's talk here that the competitors will be trying to shape the RFP to allow certain things like electric drive or surround sound cameras, which weren't really part of the original design, but you know, give them a little edge on, on Oshkosh potentially to do the production. But this will be a big test, right? To see whether like getting all that kind of IP um, and stuff like that really kind of makes sense, uh, you know, to spin someone else's production line up um, and whether there will be any kind of cost savings from the competition or whether the platform is just kind of too big to kind of realize those kinds of, you know, 80-20 or 40-60 type splits based on who has the better output. But I think this is more winner take all than than a, a split pot. Uh, so I'm, I'll be interested to see what what happens. Well, if they were, if they were smart, I, I actually would. You don't even have to do it like per contract. You could just say, well, you probably would want to do it per contract so you can keep the, the line hot. But, you know, if these guys are so motivated to kind of invest their own, you know, their own IRAD or, you know, their their own funds to, to go after this, um, you know, you could probably do like, okay, we're going to award to one this time, but the next one could be somebody different. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, Oshkosh, probably got a little comfortable here <laughs> and they're probably pretty upset <laughs> that this is their cash cow that they probably had projected for, uh, you know, 15 years or so out uh, is potentially under threat. The, the one tricky thing though, I'll say is there's always a risk when contractors propose things that are not uh, in the RFP or that are not in the, uh, the design that was approved and, you know, vetted and everything. Um, so I think they will have to be careful with that. And, if the government wants that, I think they're, they should be really deliberate about it and they should actually allow alternate proposals. I will say alternate proposals just make source selections absolutely a nightmare. So, it, you know, the people that have to, the source selection are going to probably not want that. But if they really do want to have a best value and say, okay, bring all your best ideas. You want to bring surround three cameras, you want to bring LIDAR, you want to bring, you know, this and that and, you know, better radios and all this kind of stuff then yeah, they should open it up and just say, yeah, bring your best best one. We're going to do best value on these three general areas. Keep it open-ended a little bit so you're not locking it down too much and then and then see what you get. I am still curious though. Remember when we were, remember we were talking about the, was it, I think it was General Motors, Motors Defense actually bought one of the JLTVs and then yeah, the, and the reverse, reverse engineer it. Yeah. I wonder, does that fly with the government? Like with regards to IP, like can they can they do that without like running a foul? I'm kind of curious how how that all plays out, but but yeah, this would be pretty interesting. Yeah, I guess it depends. I mean, if government had unlimited rights, then they can do willy nilly whatever, whatever yeah. they want, right? Um, the- a colonel told me, and I I tried to look this up. I didn't know if it was true. It was like in China, they're they're the PLA Air Force. Um, like an institute of reverse engineering. <laughs> I thought that was interesting. Um, and potentially, um, it's just interesting, right? Like the reverse engineering, and that's what happened a lot in World War II, right? Like they actually handed over the design to like Ford or something to go build uh, B-17s at River Run or whatever it is. In their deconstruction and kind of reconstruction, they actually like improved it in many ways or found better ways to manufacture or, you know, ways that were manu- more manufacturable and improve the reliability of the design. So, but that of course came from government designs often, but. Well, I guess the one tricky thing with this one will be is do these companies, okay, they put the money into, um, you know, doing a bid and doing some design, but how fast can they spin up? Like, is there a delay between them and Oshkosh? Is it going to take a year? So yeah, that'll be interesting to see. Are they actually working on a production line, even if they don't have the contract? Cause they, they kind of would have to be ready you'd assume, but. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the things that kind of came to mind, though, was like with the electric drive, like it might be the case that someone from on up high might want to align with the Biden kind of vision of turning a lot of the government's vehicles into electric, you know, by a certain date. So there could be a political end towards the electric point, you know, that that might allow higher costs or longer timeline. Yeah, or there's a, 
you, maybe maybe the army is kind of moving in that direction because you don't have to carry fuel and all that kind of stuff. It's easier to recharge maybe with um, solar, I don't know, solar plants or something you can bring. I don't know. It doesn't seem easy. <laughs> but yeah, I have a bunch of solar panels. Yeah, that might be just as bad as fuel. Only be one cheapest form of energy and still that, that seems to be, you know, petroleum or carbon based, right? Though <laughs> uh, we'll see. Yep. Uh, so next one we got, Army decides not to buy Israel's Iron Dome interceptor system from the Jerusalem Post. The U.S. Army chose Lido's own Dynetics launcher um, after shoot-off between the two systems last month at White Sands Missile Range in New Mexico. The Dynetics system, called Enduring Shield, has a 360-degree detection and can fire from multiple threats simultaneously and can integrate with the uh, Air and Missile Defense System, IAMD. According to a report... Uh, the average price of the Iron Dome is about $8.4 million in IAI, which manufactures the radar for Iron Dome, made a record $4.2 billion in 2020 in international sales from the multi-mission radar. So I think the, the interesting thing here is, first, Iron Dome is kind of proven to an extent in a, and pretty well tested on the foreign, foreign markets in terms of foreign military sales. But the army decided to go with the organ, or I guess the the domestic supplier, Dynetics, because of certain advantages like 360 degree detection. But it seems like the real thing that they were buying it for was its ability to kind of integrate into their battle network. Um, so it looks like Dynetics kind of had the inside lane into kind of like requirements and and what's really going on contextually in the military. Yeah, I'm not sure if there was. Um... Not sure if there was a bias against Iron Dome or maybe, you know, maybe the army knew some stuff that about that system that they didn't like. But yeah, I, I was kind of looking up some of the other articles linking to this. And it looks like there was actually a, a 2019 NDA uh, requirement to actually buy two Iron Dome batteries. So, and I guess there is a partnership between Raphael and, and Raytheon. So the army kind of, I think, you know, sucked it up and said, okay, we're going to buy these things. That'll be our interim solution. But they eventually wanted to move towards this IFPC, indirect fires protection capability. And the solicitation, I was kind of looking at some of the details there. So I guess here's how they judged it, or at least they judged the lethality. I think there were other criteria. Um, the Army plan to judge the system's lethality at required keep out ranges as most important, followed by its ability to provide 360 degree coverage of a defended area. Then in order of importance, the number of stowed kills, target service rate, load and reload time, the amount of time it takes to emplace the system, operational availability. So there were a lot of factors. Sounds like it was a fairly complex um, uh, source selection or complex uh, you know, best value determination. So, so yeah, maybe, maybe Iron Dome had a couple of good things going for it, proven, uh, but maybe, maybe there was some other stuff here that it just maybe uh, you know, fell kind of below the line just a little bit. So. Yeah, it is interesting though. Well, it's good that they did the shoot off, right? Because a lot of times yeah. uh, military doesn't like to do the shoot offs, uh, especially against something foreign, right? But um, it seemed like it was pretty robust. They did have a nice summary in the defense news article as well about all that kind of stuff. I, I still felt like, you know, some of the stuff like operational availability, like I can have a good idea of Iron Dome, but like, how does this Dynetics really have any kind of track record, you know, for some of this stuff? I almost feel like the track, like how much of it was perspective or, you know, sometimes you don't really know how like kind of, you know, staged some of these tests are that like work to one system's advantage um, versus another. You mean Pentagon Wars, Pentagon Wars stuff? <laughs> I was also um, thinking, I was also reading the Sidewinder book and, and they were doing the exact same thing when they had a shoot off between the, the Sidewinder and, and the uh, Sparrow. And, and there was also another one. Um, the ballistic missile defense that kind of took a lot of heat for a while because they were literally like shooting at a target that they, you know, like they were tracking with their own radars and saying, here's exactly where it's, where it's going to be. And then they were still missing it with the interceptors. So um, yeah, some of those, some of those tests, they, they, they give them the best possible scenario. And if they're still failing, then you know you're in trouble. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it was here. I mean, I think like you said too, they, they may have wanted something that, tied into the integrated battle command system with the Sentinel radar and stuff. They may have wanted, you know, maybe the, um, the, uh, the uh, enduring 
was it called again? Enduring, Enduring Shield. Shield. Yeah, maybe the Dianetic system was more, you know, was more designed to integrate with that that system. And maybe there was some IP stuff with the uh, Iron Dome and maybe it's some proprietary system or something that they didn't want to have to deal with. Yeah, hard to tell a little bit. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not like pissed or anything at it because ultimately, like, if the thing doesn't really work, well, then just go buy it from the Israelis and integrate it. <laughs> um, so hopefully you're not carrying too much risk because you already have the competitor that's like proven on the side right there, ready to go um, at some point. And you've had a little bit of experience with it. So, all right, next one, we got startups map out strategies to augment or back up GPS from Space News. GPS level accuracy of 4.9 meters for a smartphone operating under clear skies won't be good enough. Before autonomous cars can speed down highways, they will need to know their location within around 10 centimeters, within roughly one error every billion miles. Uh, to both TrustPoint and Zona, these two companies, intend to establish small satellite constellations in low Earth orbit to offer global positioning, navigation, and timing services independent of existing constellations. Iridium uh, satellites are 25 times closer to Earth and GPS satellites, and their beams are much more focused, O'Connor said. The net impact is that signal received on the ground is about a thousand times stronger than GPS. So interesting that, you know, private companies are kind of taking this on here. Uh, there's been a long time, you know, public good that the, the government's been kind of putting out with GPS. But, you know, it'll be interesting if uh, the government will be able to kind of take advantage of these um, private, you know, alternatives here, because we know the government's been looking pretty hard at alternatives to GPS as well. So um, it's good that there's some kind of commercial competition in of itself. Yeah, I am kind of interested. I mean, there are these, you know, GN GNSS conferences and stuff where, you know, a lot of the, the algorithms used and everything else. I mean, I, I guess it is fairly well known. There, there is some complexity that in getting, you know, getting all of that, all of that working right, getting the timing because you're, you get, you know, your timing is done with the nuclear clocks on the on the satellite, but then it also is continually touching base with the Naval Observatory. So I am kind of curious to see how well they can emulate GPS. And, you know, I mean, it's been, it's taken years and years and years to kind of get that, you know, um, to get that, that to, to work, you know, as well as it does now and to kind of, you know, improve kind of the, on the, because, because I mean, there's two pieces to it, right? There's, there's the satellite, but then there's also the, the equipment that you're using, how good is the equipment? You know, what's the user um, user error? You know, what, where are you at? You know, how many satellites do you have in view? Like there are a lot of parameters that kind of go into it. So, you know, sometimes you, you could definitely get better than 4.9 meters, but if you need to get down to centimeters, um, man, you're gonna have to have a lot of satellites in view. You're gonna have to have like augmentation on the ground because the FAA does augment for, for airplanes. They use a system called WAS. But even that only gets you down to like, I think like 1.5 to two meters. So um, yeah, I'm kind of curious to see what, what the totality of the vision here is for, for these satellites. Like how many do you need to have up there to get down to the centimeter? Cause that is a real, that's a real order of magnitude um, better. So, so yeah, I'll be interested to see what they can do here. Yeah, I'm, I wonder what's up with the Iridium part, because I think like the GPS, they use the cesium, right, to do the timing. And it, I, I know people have been saying like, that's hard as hell to do, right? Is there something that they've kind of break, broken through or do they not need to have like timing on every single satellite? They can kind of split it off. I'm, I wonder where they expect the, the kind of savings or the ability to kind of do it better or cheaper. Because like the GPS is a massive, you know, intensive uh, investment program. So, yeah, I mean, th there are some military stuff on the GPS satellites. So, I mean, there, there's the standard um, positioning service and there's the precise. And so, you know, you, you do have some some different things on there for anti-jam and for um, M-code and, you know, different things on the new satellites. But so there's a little bit of complexity with that. But in general, yeah, it's a you got to have the technology just right. And you have to have those nuclear clocks because you can't even have a tiny, tiny deviation. Otherwise it throws the whole signal off. So yeah, I'm kind of curious to see how they do this on the cheap. Um, and, and to get down to the centimeter, I mean, you're going to have to have a pretty robust constellation. So yeah, interesting to see what they, uh, what they do here. 
you know, maybe one day we'll get quantum synchronization up in those things. And maybe that'll be a cheap <laughs> alternative, right? You know, actually there is one, one thing that's really in their favor. And I think they pointed out here is um, GPS satellites are in Mio orbit, which, you know, does require a little bit uh, different, different design. So, you know, being in Leo is a little bit easier. The launch cost is cheaper. So, you know, there is, there is a benefit there. And maybe that's, maybe that's what they're seeing is that it's, it's that much cheaper to, you know, even if the design costs are a little bit higher, the, the ability to kind of launch them quickly and cheaper and not have to design them for as much radiation kind of stuff. Uh, maybe they're, yeah, maybe they're seeing the payoff there. Come on, Elon Musk, put them on the Starlinks, right? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so the next one we got the evolving geography of the U.S. defense industrial base from one of the rocks in recent years. The geography of U.S. defense spending has been undergoing a subtle shift. Overall, the defense contracts have grown more concentrated among fewer locations in the United States. The increase of concentration um, in geographic clusters could also exacerbate an already troubling divide between U.S. military and broader civilian population over three quarters of the value of Pentagon prime contracts awarded within the United States go to firms in just 15 states, about 7%, 7.7% of Connecticut's entire economy in 2020 was driven by defense prime contracts, the highest share of any state. So I think, you know, this one was weird because they were just looking at prime contracts and it's kind of hard to say where the subcontracts go and how that gets spread out, of course, um, and whether it is as concentrated um, otherwise. And there was also some other interesting figures, but any thoughts? Yeah, no, I mean, we were, we were kind of playing around with this data. I mean, if you pull this, if you pull this data together, you can, you can kind of parse a lot of different stuff out of it. It is true. I mean, I think Texas, you know, and Virginia, they've, they've always had large military presences, California, you know, some of this is probably partially due to, you know, different senators through the years or different, you know, good congressional representation and, and so kind of there were clusters of, of defense, you know, defense companies going to certain places. But, you know, th these states, if you look at them or not, that's surprising to me. I mean, um, maybe the maybe the one a little bit surprising is um, Missouri. It's a little bit higher. But, um, yeah, I mean, it, it, they're spread across. And like you said, there's a lot of really, you know, sub tier vendors that are, you know, they provide a product. It's not necessarily like tailored for the military. It could just be just a commercial product, but it's, it's going to a defense item. And, you know, there's, there's a lot more, probably a lot more you could parse, parse this down if you broke, broke down the supply chain, but I, I don't know. It didn't really, um, I don't know. It didn't strike me as being something that we needed to freak out about um, because, you know, some, some States, you know, maybe they invest, they put more of their, their focus is going to be in some other tech areas. Maybe they're going to be, you know, trying to focus more the green, the green, um, you know, green economy, or maybe they're going to, you know, maybe some of these, you know, have, have more tourism kind of focus or, or whatnot. So there's, you know, there's different industries and just because they don't get a bunch of defense dollars. Yeah. I didn't, didn't uh, freak out. So. Yeah. One thing I always thought was like, we see these economies of collaboration, you know, in a lot of industries where like Hollywood has all the, you know, entertainment and then Silicon Valley has tech and New York has, you know, finance. And it's just like defense is just spread out everywhere because of the political interests involved to just go spread it. But maybe it does need to be more concentrated. Maybe there needs to be just like, you know, defense town where like everybody there talks to tech and they all kind of like go out together. And there's that kind of synergy and that kind of, I don't know, kind of network effect from, from people being in the same place and being able to move more easily between jobs or whatever it might be. So sometimes I, I kind of wonder, you know, is that the, this guy's thinking of it like in the exact wrong way, like, Oh, well, we need to spread defense everywhere. So it looks like, you know, national demographics. I mean, is that right or wrong? Should it look more like agglomeration economies? I mean, I guess I would, I would expect it to be more spread out just because, I think these companies generally do try to make sure they have a presence, you know, a, a spread a little bit and they're not too, too stuck in just one, um, in one area because they do want to, you know, kind of be able no, to I'm, say, I'm just saying like yeah, from a, ideally. like, like when you think of what would be an ideal, yeah, production or effective production system, like, should it be that like spread out or would it benefit from agglomeration economies as, as we've seen in other sectors? 
I guess the one thing I would, to that question, I would want to see broken down is where is the intellectual, you know, kind of the design R&D, the, the hardcore kind of engineering invention, you know, innovation, whatever you want to call it, that, that upfront piece that, you know, requires a certain type of worker. And then, you know, a lot of this can be, once you have a manufacturing plant, you know, going, you're just kind of churning these things out. Um, and that's a different type of skill. So I think it does make sense for, and I think this happens just intuitively. I mean, you saw it with Amazon moving to DC. Um, you know, the companies that need the engineering talent are going to go to certain places. And Fort Worth, you know, for Lockheed has become sort of an engineering hub. If you have, if you graduate from a Texas university and you have an aerospace engineering degree, you know, Fort Worth is probably a fairly attractive place if you, if you want to stay in Texas. And so, you know, I do think, I do think there are hubs for R&D for sure. Um, for, for missiles, you know, Alabama, I mean, Alabama is like, you know, where, where the, um, where the missile, the whole missile program started. And so a lot of missile talent down there. And so, yeah, I, I think, I think you're right that it, it does make sense for, especially for the different kind of functional areas for, for there to be some probably, you know, um, concentrations for that, because that, that way the, the industry can kind of, you know, so it's just a little bit more easy to collaborate and easy to kind of share ideas and stuff. But but in general, I think when you when you if you can't break it down and, and break out the, the manufacturing, it's kind of hard to tell because manufacturing, I think, can pretty much just be anywhere. Yeah, definitely. The next one we got and we'll, we'll go through these pretty quick. Japanese rocket engine explodes continuously and on purpose from Hacker Hackaday. So Japan Aerospace Exploration Agency has completed a successful test of rotating detonation engine. And I think we reported a while ago, Central Florida had actually been testing one of these. The Japanese effort actually involved a real launch, but it was at, I believe, a much, um, it, had, it had a lot less pressure, essentially, <laughs> a lot less uh, power than, than the Central Florida one. So it'll be interesting to see kind of like these, all these different kind of concepts to uh, doing launch or doing, uh, you know, hypersonics and, and what actually works out. Uh, but Interesting to see that the Air Force chooses C-30 instead of the C-5M for Kabul evacuations from Jane. So Air Mobility Command preferred to floor uh, to floor load roughly 400 passengers per A to maximize the number of evac evacuees airlifted. Um, in some cases, they actually used the KC-10 extender and the C-5 to transport evacuees from intermediate staging bases. So I wonder, you know, you have a an idea, Air Force guy over there. Well, yes. Why did they choose the C seventeen? Like the C five was supposed to be like this rapid response, like let's move a whole bunch of stuff in theater, um, but they kind of kept it um, out of theater and kind of more in the intermediate staging. What what do you think drove that, or does it even matter? Yeah, I mean, I I don't know this for sure, but I've taken a number of mill air flights, and every time I ever took a C five, it broke down. And I mean, literally, be like you'd fly for two hours, and they'd say we had an issue, we had planned. And so I have to imagine at least a part of it was reliability and the ability to repair it in Kabul um, if something happened, whereas the C-17 was designed to basically land in, in sort of unimproved airfields and to be able to handle a lot more abuse. And it has a, a pretty pretty uh, robust reliability rate. And so, yeah, I, I kind of probably think some of it came down to that. I was supposed to be able to land in rough condition, but then like by the time Lockheed got through with it, it was like it needed exquisite conditions, right? They had a bunch of like landing gear issues and other things throughout the development of that thing. So yeah, it's, it's, a it's impressive aircraft. when you look at yeah, it. Land that in the dirt. <laughs> but that was the, the the con ops, right? That they were going for back in the 60s. It's crazy. The thing's still around, but so is KC-10. Uh, so uh, next one we got, Let's take our first look at Kratos's Airwolf tactical drone. Um, so the Airwolf is a descendant from the fire jet aerial target system, and they're making that a tactical drone. And one of the interesting points here is that Kratos, uh, back in 2015, had zero tactical drones. And in 2020, it has four, including the Gremlin, which it produces, though Dynetics is the prime developer. But that's a pretty impressive increase in in Kratos and what they're doing. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, how this kind of upstart um, kind of whether they disrupt and what, what they do with Cyborg and some of these other things. Yeah. I hope one of these takes off. I mean, the Valkyrie is, is much bigger, a much bigger one. This one seems to be kind of modeled off of the, uh, uh, the fire jet, the MQ, M MQM 178. So I don't know how much bigger it is, but the fire fire jet only had 
you know, 11 feet by 6.5 feet with a, you know, ability to carry about 70 pounds. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's definitely a good amount of weight for sensors. Maybe it could have some like small missiles, like a APKWS, which is like a anti-personnel missile. So, I mean, maybe you could have certain things on it, but you know, it's, um, yeah, it's mainly going to be for some kind of probably ISR or some kind of sensor thing. So I, I, I have to imagine, I mean, it just seems like the, the drone market is blowing up that this is not going to become a, a differentiator. Like maybe the, the real differentiator is going to be, you know, what's your loiter time, you know, how much, you know, for how small can you get the package for like, you know, in terms of transportation and stuff, how small can you get it for the max amount of weight? Like, I feel like we're going to get to a point in the not so distant future where when you do a drone competition, you're going to be looking at a bunch of different criteria and it's going to start to become more and more, you know, rigorous. Like it, you're, you're going to have to really have a clear differentiator. Um, and, and maybe part of that will be also like what you tie back into, what systems it ties back into, how well, how well the data can be, you know, offloaded and, you know, um, all those kind of things. So, yeah, I'm a little bit impressed, but at the same time, it just seems like everybody's kind of doing drone, uh, including Dr. Ripper's you know, company. So, you know, they're going to, there's going to be a lot of competition here. But these are high performance, like, jets, yeah. right? Like, yeah, yeah. These are not everyone's doing that kind of drone. You're right. They are doing, they are doing turbo jets. So that is, that is different, but we've seen a few of those, um, you know, some of the stuff that the, even that the Marine Corps is, you know, looking at and stuff like that. So yeah, you're right. This is, these are more high end, but, but once again, I, I do think, I don't think they're going to be alone in the market for long. And no, yeah, they seem to be filling like a middle ground between like super high performance, you know, going 70,000 feet versus like, you know, like the, all the, the proliferation of little drones that are kind of rotor copter kind of things. So, yeah. Yeah. So that's all we got time for this week. Thanks. And we'll, we'll talk to you next. Thanks, sir. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.